So those of you that have lived in Colorado for some time, do you remember when uh, the avalanche first came to Denver? Do you remember that, the year they came and uh, their rise to fame? Uh, probably my first real exposure to hockey, I had a friend who used to play for DU, which has an incredible hockey team, and uh, through time would go and watch some games with him. And then we moved to Wisconsin, where I was at the college, and we had a hockey team. And so we would we'd go and watch with all the students, and uh, it was just a lot, of, a lot of fun. I'm not gonna pretend like I know a lot about hockey. We've got a lot of hockey players in this church, <laughs> and they're very good. We got young ones, and we, I won't call you old, more mature, <laughs> experienced hockey players. Um, yes, yes, yes. And uh, so I won't try to pretend, but I, I do know there's something interesting about the game. They have this penalty box, and you don't want your, you're in a championship game, you don't want your best player sitting in the penalty box. Now, it's a little different in soccer, but in hockey, it's when you did a bad thing. Uh, you, you've not been behaving on the ice. Either you, you got into a fight, which a lot of people come to watch those. Um, you got into a fight, you broke a rule, and so you've got to sit down and it's like, go to your room. And, uh, and then when things get out of control, it's, it gets a little complicated. How many two-minute periods you got to be in, in those places? And I was reading through one of the commentaries about Moses, and it describes Moses as being in God's penalty box. <laughs> And I thought, I don't know if I would describe it that way uh, when we get into this section that we just read, but that's probably the way Moses felt. And I think it's often the way Christians can feel as well that, you know something, I did a bad thing and now I'm in God's penalty box <laughs> and I'm, I'm being punished for what I did. But it's something interesting about the character of God. I don't believe, if you take the whole of the scriptures, that God punishes his children. It doesn't work that way. Now, there are natural consequences to our behavior, and uh, Craig talked about that a couple weeks ago. You do certain things, there, there are certain consequences to that. But God is not in the business of punishing his children. He will correct them. He will instruct them. Um, he will get their attention in certain ways. And I think that's really happening here in the life of Moses. I have been through this a number of years ago, but it's like this time going through the life of Moses in so many different ways has meant more to me personally. And I think it's because there's more life. There's wa more water uh, under the bridge. There's more that I've experienced that I can identify with Moses. And so I'm, I've really been looking forward to sharing this message with you. Um, since that's, I thought it was pretty good, God's, um, or Moses in the penalty box. <laughs> uh, that's the title of the message. I don't believe that's really what God is doing, but that it is real in the sense that that's what Moses is feeling. So uh, four points to this message, if, you want, if you're taking notes or following through. Um, what, what happened to Moses? Uh, secondly, uh, what do we think Moses felt? In other words, what's events happened? Here's how Moses is feeling. And then what is God doing? What is, what is God doing? You've felt that way too. 
what are you doing, God, in my life? And then finally, how will Moses respond? As we've said, probably no more character, it's not just in Scripture, but in all of human history is more recognizable other than Jesus than Moses. And we see in the first five books that he's written, we see just about 700 times made reference to, and, and even today, as we've read Scripture, we're, we're drawing from three different places or three different accounts. So what happened to Moses? Uh, you read through the first two chapters of Exodus, Acts chapter 7, and then there's a summary account in Hebrews 11 when when God's talking about the faithful ones, describing his life. So we get pieces and insight. It's like a, a conglomeration of these things to learn things about what was happening with it in his life. So we're looking about 1,400 years before the time of Christ that um, Moses is, comes on the scene. They had, um, what, was, what was Israel or that people doing in Egypt. Well, they came um, those 400 years earlier, about 400 years earlier, um, because of a famine. And God had sent in his providence and a whole nother story in the life of Joseph, God sends Joseph ahead. We read that in Psalm 105. God sent Joseph ahead as a slave. And he became second in command to Pharaoh. And so he's ruling all over Egypt. Now he has great power, so he's able to help his family. Family all comes and join him, 70 people. 70 people, that's a big family, isn't it? But this family now is 2 million. That's a really big <laughs> family. Can you imagine a, a family reunion um, with 2 million people? So this is really before they get to be a nation. This is just a people. And... We read in chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, there arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, did not remember Joseph, feels threatened by the children of Israel. And so they make them slaves, they uh, put heavy burdens on them, they pressure them, and then we start seeing a genocide. Uh, they, they are killing off or attempting to kill off all the male children. So this is when... Moses is born. The name Moses means drawn out. It's like you're drawn out of these times. But God will often place a, a person strategically in a very, very difficult time. He was under a death sentence. Very similar to when Christ was born and Herod was trying to kill all the male children uh, that were in Israel. And so they fled to Egypt for a period of time. Read that about Christ. There's so many types and images here as we're going to find Moses, like every other story in Scripture, is going to point to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the central figure of all of the Bible. It is this story of redemption, and it is a story of relationship. And that's what God wants for you, redemption and relationship. And this is what he is going to be working in the life of Moses. So the story is this. Moses is born. There are people snooping around wanting to kill off the baby boys. So his mom makes a little ark. In fact, it's the same word for the pitch. Um, put the sticks together and the pitch. 
and floats this out into the Nile River. So when the soldiers are coming around or the inspectors are coming around, uh, Moses' older sister, she's probably at 10 or so at the time, is watching from a distance as her little brother is floating around in the weeds. And Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river to bathe and with her servants finds Moses. Now, it's like typical things. You go, oh, no, no, everything's going wrong. Everything's going right. Everything's going right. And so Miriam, Moses' sister, says, do you want me to go and find a nurse for the baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says yes. And so this is another, to me, magnificent part of the story is that until the child is weaned, which could be from two to three years of age, this baby is being attached to his, his birth mother. Now he's being adopted out to Pharaoh's house. So this, this kid goes from being under a death sentence, going to die, threatened his life, born into slavery, born into misery, to being in a home that is the richest home in the land. And he is in line to most likely, I think most scholars will say, in line to be at one point the next pharaoh. In other words, to rule the entire land. And you think, man, God just, he worked an incredible thing here to be able to get the right guy. It's like the perfect leader. He's a Hebrew. He has passion for his people. In fact, we read that when he was 40 years of age, he still had a heart for his people. Uh, in Hebrews, it tells us he, rather than enjoy, enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, he wanted to identify with the suffering people. So he knew these things. So Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He said, well, how did Moses even know about Christ? <laughs> and uh, that's kind of a mystery, but you see how all of this will flow together. <clears throat> so, wealthiest home, most influential home, in line to maybe be the next pharaoh. And then it says in Acts chapter 7, it says that, that we read this morning, he was educated in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. As I shared last week, this was a very intellectual society. This isn't like backwards cavemen. This is a very, very uh, advanced culture. And when it says that, of course, he grew up in a home, he had all the privilege of education. They called it the Temple of the Sun or the University of the Sun. Math, astronomy, medicine, engineering, architecture, the arts and sciences, writing, hieroglyphics, speaking, languages. Uh, he, he was very advanced in education. So we, all, we already know he was a beautiful child. Remember that? Um, of course, we say every mother will say it. But um, it says, in fact, three different accounts says he's beautiful. Beautiful child. So good looking. Okay. Well-educated. Wealthy. Going to be the next pharaoh. And... Outside of scripture, we learn from Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, there are many records that show this, that he ended up being a general in the Egyptian army and led the entire army against Ethiopia, a million-man army, 
and defeated them and plundered their capital city. So he was a war hero. All of this, you say, well, he's overqualified. He also has a heart for God. Because, because when all this happened, it says he would have thought that these people would have understood that God had sent him to deliver them. So he sees himself as, I want to serve God. I want to identify with my people. I'll be the next Pharaoh. I'm a military general, successful, intelligent, articulate. Because in Acts 7, it says he is mighty in words and in deeds. Now, when you first think of Moses, don't you think of a guy standing at the burning bush? We'll get to that next week or in two weeks. He's standing at the burning bush and he said, I can't speak in front of people. But how do you reconcile, it says he was mighty in words. What does that mean? He was a powerful communicator. But that was 40 years before when he was a general, when he was leading, when he was successful. And 40 years of being in the, in the desert with a bunch of sheep, you probably don't feel real articulate in front of a crowd. So that's the difference. So here's what happens. He sees God's hands on his life. He feels he's appointed to be the deliverer. He has all of the tools. He has all of the tools. And one day he goes out. He's at 40 years of age, which is, that's what we call the prime of life. Everybody believe that? 40? Now, I know some of you young people, you think when your parents get 40, oh, that is so old. <laughs> but let me tell you that the biblical message is when he was full of years, at the height of his maturity, 40 years of age. So just remember that, kids. And uh, every year after that is just better. So at 40 years of age, he is going out and he, and he is looking at the plight of the Hebrew people. All this is going on. He, he is qualified to be the deliverer. But he takes matters into his own hands. He sees a fellow Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian. He kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. He doesn't think anybody saw that. The next day he's out trying to break up another fight between two Hebrews. And they say, what, are you going to do the same thing to us as you did to him? And he realizes it's out. And Pharaoh is going to try to kill him. And so he is on the run. He's a fugitive. He's, he leaves everything. Imagine this. He is at the peak of his success. And he leaves everything. And he goes to Midian, which is across the Red Sea, out in the middle of the desert. And he sits down by a well. Okay, this is the first 40 years of his life. You can't be doing any better, I don't think. Be more successful, more the perfect deliverer than what Moses was. And yet, it's like I, we... Sing the song, we don't sing it um, too often, but I did it my way. <laughs> you think that way. I did it my way, Frank, Frank Sinatra. And I think a lot of Christians seek to do God's will their own way. 
Well, I know what God wants, and so I've got a plan. And you just kind of go out and you think, you know what, this is good, it's noble, it's right, and so I'm just going to go do it. And everything falls apart. You're not going to come up with a better idea for God. <laughs> You're just not. And so when we, we go from this first 40 years and find him sitting down by a well. And, you know, my, my thoughts go to John chapter 4 when Jesus is with the woman at the well. And he talks about the water of life. Remember, I, we read it in Hebrews. He's looking forward to Jesus. All he had left was that well. And I think sometimes we get to a point in our lives where all we have left is Jesus because he's not going anywhere. So we move from what happened to how do you think Moses felt? <laughs> well, it's hard to imagine how he felt, but I think the words that come to my mind, absolute total failure, you know, loser, discouraged, Abandoned, alone, washed up, lost confidence, hurt, angry, bitter, betrayed, and no hope. My life is over. Now, I'm talking to a lot of people that it may not be that severe in your life, but you have felt that way. You've run the gamut on all of the emotions. You're at a very, very low point. And he would spend the next 40 years of his life on the backside of a desert. He really didn't know God yet personally. If you read through this story, you think, you know, he knew about God. He did not know God. When you get to the burning bush experience, it's, it's, it's very clear that he knew about God. He had heard about God. He had worshipped God. It's kind of like he went to church <laughs> But he did not know God personally. And this is where this whole story is moving. God wants you to know him personally, intimately, in a real, vital relationship. So you go from the height to the depth. He's in the desert for 40 years. So the third point is asking this question, what was God doing with Moses? <laughs> That's what I'd like to know. Have you, have you had a prayer like that? God, what are you doing? I have, no, I have no idea what you're doing. This does not make any sense because we were on the perfect path to rescue Israel with all of my abilities and I did all the education. I get all, you know, the thing about the being in the little basket Rescued by Pharaoh, being in, I mean, it's all of that. Here's the thing. God doesn't need any of it. I kind of cringe sometimes when, when people will say, God needs you to do whatever, whatever. God doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. He's self-existent. God does not need anything. He doesn't need your talent. He doesn't need your education. He doesn't need your good looks. He doesn't need your pedigree. 
He doesn't need any of this. But what he wants is a heart that is fully surrendered to him. That's what he wants. And God can do anything he wants through any person he chooses. This is what we need to realize. We have such a premium today on, you know, and, and I'm all, it doesn't really say any of this is bad, having a good education and having a good breaks and you know, all that kind of stuff. God doesn't need any of it. And for your kids to succeed, they don't need that either. They need a heart that is surrendered to God. That's what he wants. So it's not so much a penalty box, <laughs> but I would call it graduate school, advanced training. You know, typically um, when you go to school or anything else, they say, now we have some advanced training. If you're like me, I'm done with school. I don't want any more school. I always ask the kids before school starts, you excited about school starting? <laughs> uh, so we kind of go through that conversation. I, I want to be done with school. We have more training. And um, what is it that God, that, that's missing in the life of Moses? It was the same thing as I shared last week was missing in the life of Jonah. Brokenness. Humility. Dependence. This is not easy for any of us when, when God will have to, to crush us. But Jesus said in John 12, 24, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, if it's crushed, that seed will bring much fruit. A while ago, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's kind of a longer series, 16 chapters. Um, and the title of our series was Walk in Wisdom. Walk in Wisdom. First chapter started out this way. For you consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jeremiah 9, verse 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. I want you to think about that. The things we might want to boast in, riches, wisdom, success, no. You boast in this one thing. I know the Lord. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. He said, you don't boast because you're casting out demons or you have miracles. He said, but, but you are my children. This is what you boast in. You boast in the dependence upon him. And of course, the scriptures are filled with this. So what God is saying, I don't need a king. 
I need a servant. I don't need a, a, a king to put over these people. I need a servant. You know, when Moses had died, he said to, to uh, Joshua, who was following him, he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's how God would refer to him, as my servant. He's going to do what I've asked him to do. David was referred to as God's servant. Abraham was referred to as God's servant. So, not a pharaoh, but a slave. Not a CEO, but a shepherd. You know, I thought, isn't it interesting that Moses is trained to be an intellect, he's trained to be a military general, he's trained to be a pharaoh. That's first 40 years. It's kind of like the ascending talent. The next 40 years, God's going to teach him how to be a shepherd. I mean, a shepherd. Do you remember what it said about the Egyptians? This is back when Moses, uh, or uh, Joseph is having discussion about his family coming. He said, I'm going to give you the land of Goshen because shepherds are despised among the Egyptians. It's loathsome. It, it is like, oh, disgusting. Isn't it interesting that for the next 40 years, God is teaching him how to really lead. You really lead by being a servant. And you really learn, uh, learn to lead by being a shepherd. Now, we see this followed through. David. How did David start? The shepherd. He was the shepherd king. Jesus is called the good shepherd. Your favorite psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And I thought, it, it, is, it, is, it is the model for leadership. The same way pastors are called to be not so much preachers, teachers, leaders, what are they called to be? Shepherds. Here's what grieves me when I see a new generation of pastors coming out. I see very few shepherds. Very few shepherds. More than anything else, a pastor is to be a shepherd. I get pretty passionate about this because I feel like we're losing something in our current society. There are four qualities that I see for a good shepherd. Leading, feeding, caring, and protecting. You lead. How do I lead? As, as a pastor, how do I lead you? By following Christ. Paul said this, follow me as I follow Christ. How, how can I lead anyone unless I'm following Christ? I won't lead perfectly. You know that. You've been around here long enough. You know I won't lead perfectly. But the way I lead is I have my eyes on Christ and I will follow him no matter what. Feeding. How do you feed? Well, part of it is small groups, it's Bible studies, it's discipleship. Part of it is on Sunday morning preaching God's word. 
but my prayer is that the preaching of God's word would, would always be an overflow of what God's doing here first. It's all week long here first. And when God has broken and God has shaped and God has convicted and God has taught this heart, then the spillover will come. That's what shepherds do. Caring. You need to know your people. You need to know your flock. How do you know one's missing? Say, so you have a hundred sheep and one is missing, how do you know? Well, I've delegated that. You know, the, the idea today is that, you know, we got, we got something really good going on here. Like we say, and, and I, I love our church. But what if we said, you know what, this, this church is just wonderful. We need to scale it. We need to scale it. You know what I mean when I say that? It's like any other, well, you know, we're just going to make it go big. We get a thousand of these. And, and what happens to relationship? What happens to relationship? I think it's not wrong to have large church, but I'd say it's a lot harder to know what's going on in the lives of people, where they hurt, where they have pain, where they have needs, and to be there for them. You know, it, to me, a shepherd will know and understand and care and feel and be there. And be there. And finally, protecting. Protecting them from spiritual warfare, from Satan, from false teachers, from temptation. Um, the best that you do. So, so I want you to see the difference between the CEO general Pharaoh Moses and the servant shepherd Moses. The independent, the independent, confident man is going to go to, through a, a season of 40 years of brokenness to where he has, he has zero confidence. Has that ever happened to you where your confidence has just been shaken? It's not fun. But God gets you there so that your confidence will switch from being in your abilities or what you know or what you do to your confidence is in God alone. And man, that is a good confidence. <laughs> you know, I have confidence in God's faithfulness. I have confidence in God's power. I have confidence in God's provision. That is the best confidence to have. And so as a Christian, you don't need to be all like, oh, I don't have any confidence. At all. No, you have great confidence. Moses can become a great leader for his people. But his confidence is in the right place. So God in this next 40 years, and we don't really read a lot about these 40 years. The first 40 years we read a bit, okay? All the, all the big stuff that's happening. And then 40 years of him, where, where was he? Same place. <laughs> He's in that desert. 40 years. That's a long time, folks. Now, I know he lived to be 120, but that's still a long time. And you say, well, couldn't he kind of learn that lesson in year one? <laughs> Maybe, but it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Humility, brokenness, dependence, relationship, intimacy with God. 
is the kind of leadership that he wants. And we wait. I hate waiting. I hate waiting. But you, you find every, just about every person you read about in Scripture is, is God's asking them to wait. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I've been, I've been waiting, okay? It's been long enough, 40 years. Abraham had to wait. David had to wait. Joseph had to wait. Sorry, folks. Say, can I just read the book? I mean, if I just kind of read the book and know, you know, wait on God. Okay, wait on God. (laughs) He's going to drive it home. Everything of great value, God's most likely going to have you wait for. So finally, how did Moses respond? Well, we're going to see this final season of his life. We're going to get into... This is burning bush experience. It's, it's the, the bush being on fire and it's not consumed and he comes to know God in a personal way. And then the, the last 40 years of his life. In the last 40 years, he's got, kind of gone from 40 years of achievement, 40 years of brokenness, and then I think his final 40 years of great usefulness and fruitfulness. A life of true success. So, I'll tell you this, I, the older I get, the more I, I feel this stuff. I feel this stuff. Stuff like what? Like saying, God, what are you doing? Am I in the penalty box? <laughs> Two minutes is up. Okay, we're extending your time. <laughs> And it's not about me being ready to go do something for God. Because I'm all, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go. It's about me coming to know him like I haven't known him before. And the deeper that relationship goes in the knowledge of God, the greater ability will be there to do what I need to do. The confidence is in him. Dependence is, is, upon, is on him, in him. You know, I think of Moses, there's been no man that we read about in scripture like Moses. That's why we call this series Face to Face. Because he's the only one we read about that knew God face to face. He is a leader who is marked by being a shepherd. He's a leader who is marked by being a servant. And all of the accolades of his first 40 years, God doesn't need any of it. You say, well, why'd he do it? (laughs) Because I think that feeling that pain in the desert at the well was necessary for him to get it. How about you? You felt that way? You felt... Failed, alone, the desert, what's God doing? It's been a long time. God is working something much greater in your life than you could possibly imagine. And we're going to see it unfold in the life of Moses. Father, thank you so much for your word. We struggle with a lot of things in life, trying to understand what's going on, where you are, why things have gone the way they've gone.
what seems to be failure to us, Lord, is part of the plan of you shaping us into being what we need to be. And so I pray that for each of us, as we experience that desert, that silence, that quiet, that aloneness, that pain, we'd realize that it comes from a loving God who wants to give us best thing in life, relationship with him. Thank you, Lord, for these lessons in Jesus' name. Amen.